I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15. Recently, we've commenced a series of messages on Christ's parables. And having finished the seven kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, we've moved to Luke chapter 15 to consider three parables uttered by our Lord on the subject of the lost and found. I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him, that is to Jesus, to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which, I, which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a marvelous passage this is. Indeed, the common people heard our Savior gladly, and they, they still do. We are common people with an uncommon Lord who speaks of uncommon mercy that he extends to the likes of people like us, garden variety sinners, some great, some small, all of us yet needing the word of salvation spoken with power to our hearts, that we who are lost, that we might be found. And we pray that this day, the Lord Jesus Christ, by his spirit, would be seeking out and searching for and finding and returning lost sinners to the Father, that there might be great joy in heaven and amongst the people of God. Lord, so hear us, we pray. Open our eyes to see the truths that are contained here. Help us to see our faces upon those who are here described. Let us not just casually consider this passage that many of us know so well, 
But we pray with fresh power you would write these things upon our hearts, that it would good would be done to each person in this room, that praise might redound to your name. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Remember the occasion for this parable of Jesus. Our Lord spoke this threefold parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son with a purpose. And that was to defend himself against the unjust charge of the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, that he maintained an unholy familiarity with those that they deemed deplorables. To their way of thinking, Jesus could not be the Holy Son of God from heaven since he received sinners and he actually ate with them. You see, Pharisaic theology had no place for a Messiah who seeks sinners. For these influential religious leaders, God receives only those who conform at least outwardly their lives to his law, especially to its ceremonial prescriptions and to their Pharisaic additions. And though they exercise a commendable commitment to the lesser statutes of the law, in the process they neglected the weightier provisions of the law, that is justice and mercy and faithfulness. They utterly misunderstood Jesus' purpose for coming into this world. That is, to seek and to save lost sinners like you and like me. Experientially, these religious leaders, they knew nothing of justification by faith, of repentance unto life, of the monumental spiritual change that takes place in the new birth. You see, because they were without new hearts and were not right with God themselves, they did not appreciate Jesus' ministry in seeking and saving sinners. So they grumbled against him because he refused to regard them as righteous, but instead concentrated his ministry in reaching society's rejects. But Jesus said wisdom is vindicated by her children. Many such children gathered around the Savior of sinners, and so they do still today. Now this morning, when we come to, as we come to consider this second parable of the lost, having seen the lost sheep, and we're going to look at the lost son, let us this morning consider the lost coin. We're going to look at the imagery of the parable considered, Secondly, the message of the parable expounded. And thirdly, the meaning of the parable applied. Let us then consider the imagery of the parable considered. What is this picture that Jesus paints here? Well, notice three things. First of all, a precious coin lost. Now, Jesus' audience would have easily related to the imagery in these parables. As rural folk, they knew about wayward sheep. As mainly poorer people, they could imagine the trauma of a woman losing her cherished coin. And though we who are more urban and affluent, we we know something, don't we, of the pain of losing something that we treasure? Now the word translated here, coin, is the word drachma. 
A drachma was roughly equivalent to the Roman denarius. And a denarius was the average day's wage for a common worker. It has been suggested that this woman's lost coin, we don't know for sure because Jesus doesn't say, might have been part of a precious family heirloom. Maybe falling from a necklace or a bracelet or a headband that some in the the Middle East still wear. Perhaps some of you ladies have lost a prized piece of jewelry yourselves. I remember my wife's panic when she misplaced her mother's rings that she inherited. Maybe this lost coin formed up part of this woman's dowry. But I suggest the simplest reason is the best. The loss of this coin was significant to this woman because she was likely poor and she needed this coin to provide for her daily needs, maybe for her food or her rent. or This was represented part of her very livelihood. To locate a lost coin in a first century Palestinian home was no easy thing. The floors of most homes were hard-packed earth covered with straw or reeds, which were changed infrequently. This floor covering, as you might guess, would collect a large amount of dust and debris. And add to this problem the fact that the homes of the poor were dimly lit. Few had windows. All they had were oil lamps that threw very little light. And to find a lost coin in such a dimly lit cottage would have been like searching for the proverbial needle in a haystack. So that's the precious coin lost. Consider secondly, as we consider the imagery, the woman's earnest search. Notice a few things about her search. First of all, she searches, and the word here is carefully. This word is used by Luke to describe the care of the good Samaritan that he provided for the wounded man. We can easily visualize this woman lighting a lamp, carefully sweeping and sifting and maybe crawling across the floor on her hands and knees, squinting her eyes in the dim light, carefully searching for her lost treasure. It's got to be here somewhere. Further, she searches continually. This word, this verb search is a present tense, which indicates that she searched with perseverance. She doesn't quit. She doesn't put her broom aside until she spies the glinting coin as she scoops it up with her hand. Finally, the woman searched successfully. Like the shepherd in search of the lost sheep, this woman hunted high and low, convinced that her search would not be in vain. Her perseverance kept her looking until the coin was found. And as we shall see, so it is with our Lord. He came from heaven, assured that he would find and rescue all the elect that his father had given him. He knew that he would recover and return to God all those for whom he came, came to die. And notice briefly, thirdly, as we consider the imagery having looked at the precious coin lost and the woman's earnest search, a joyful discovery shared. We can imagine the woman's joy in locating her lost coin. 
She might have almost given up hope, but she's down there scratching around and she finds it and she takes it up and she can hardly contain her happiness. Like the shepherd who found his lost sheep, she was not content to keep the joy of discovery to herself. And even if she had not informed her neighbors of her loss, she went door to door. She knew that they would enjoy the, the, the news of her discovery because they too, no doubt, had lost treasures. But she had lost hers and she had found it. So that's the imagery of the parable considered. Notice, secondly, the message of the parable expounded. What is Jesus meaning here? Well, Jesus' point is essentially the same here as in the parable of the lost sheep. Both stories set before us a grievous loss, a careful search, and a joyful discovery. As in the case of the lost sheep, Jesus, again, is arguing from the lesser to the greater, from the material to the spiritual, from the temporal to the eternal. If it is right for us to search for, recover, and then to rejoice over finding something that is only of temporal value, how much more right is it for Jesus to seek and to recover priceless, never-dying souls that have been lost from the Father? Jesus' question Introducing both this and the former parable, assume this. What man wouldn't leave the 90 and 9 and go search for the lost one? What woman, if she loses a coin, wouldn't tear her house apart trying to find it? Well, we can't miss the plain message of this parable. Notice three clear lessons. First of all, God values lost sinners. That's right. God values lost sinners. This is taught by the shepherds seeking the lost sheep and the woman, the lost coin. The scribes and the Pharisees, on the other hand, viewed the lower ranks of society as worthless and utterly unworthy of their concern. We're the valuable ones. Why would you be concerned with this riffraff? You see, they viewed such people as beyond saving, as beyond God's pity, as only fodder for fire. Even as the shepherd valued the lost sheep out of 100 and the woman one coin out of 10, so God values each lost sinner that he saves by the work of Jesus Christ. Their diligent search proves this. Both the shepherd and the woman reckoned no no toil too great to recover their loss. Let me say it again. Jesus' parables here, the lost son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep, teach that God values sinners. And this he proved by dispatching his beloved son, from glory on a search and rescue mission. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. This rescue 
you see, Jesus accomplishes at the cost of his own life. So why, why does God value sinners enough to seek and to save them by Jesus at such a cost to himself? Well, God values sinners, first of all, because like the sheep and the coin, they belong to him. All sinners belong to God. They are his personal property. He made us and he values us since we of all of his creatures, even above the angels, we're the crown of his creation. We bear his image. And that image was not lost, but marred at the fall. Psalm 8 asks, What is man that thou dost take thought of him? And the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God, and dost crown him with glory and majesty. You see, when God created the world, he created Adam as his righteous and representative son. But in our first father, he who was the vice regent under the majesty of God, in our first father, Adam, we rebelled against God's good purpose for us. We were lost in Adam. And nevertheless, like the lost coin, God still values us in our lost estate. We still bear his image, marred as it is by sin. And beyond that, he places a special value upon those that he has chosen in Christ to save by Jesus' death. Now, how can we begin to value those whom Christ redeems at the cost of his blood? By his precious blood, he redeemed his people. We have been redeemed at no possibly higher cost than the blood of the Son of God. Now, one of these will fail to be found and restored to God's favor. Indeed, the image of God distorted by the fall and sin is being restored by the Holy Spirit in all sinners that Jesus has purchased for God. So let me speak a relevant word of application regarding God's valuation of sinful men. Because I think there's still something of the Pharisee in us, even after we're saved. And we tend to devalue, look down upon, and regard as deplorables those who are, we would regard as society's rejects. Brethren, true self-esteem begins by embracing your, your identity as a creature made in God's image. The angels are not even made in God's image. The animals are not made in God's image. He made us to be his image bearers. That's what we are as our basic identification. We are the image of God. You are not an accidental collision of random molecules. You are fearfully and wonderfully and purposefully made by the fingertips of a wise and a gracious God. 
That is who you are. That is what you are. Evolution could never produce anything with any intrinsic value, even people. At our highest, in their view, we are nothing but exalted animals. You see, people have inherent value because they are created by God in his image and because they belong to him. When somebody gives you something that's of value, you value it, do you not? You guard it. But how far have we gone from our understanding of our innate dignity as image bearers of God, running as fast as our carnal feet will take us into the ways of sin? Therefore, the godless self-esteem movement is both futile and illogical. It attempts to find meaning and assign value in a meaningless universe. You see, human dignity cannot emerge from the primordial mud puddle. It's impossible. Logically, without God, nothing can have value and meaning. Hope is impossible because redemption is therefore impossible. Atheism provides no hope because it rejects God who is our hope. Not surprisingly, this prevailing sense of futility leads logically to all manner of cruelty and perversion. If we're nothing but exalted animals, we might as well, if it feels good, do it, right? We should not be surprised at the proliferation of abortion, the push for euthanasia, and the promotion of perverse sexuality. A true sense of dignity and a proper self-worth arises only from the recognition of our identity as the image bearers of the living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and the object of the Savior's sacrifice. Humanism, even by its attempts to deify man, fails to assess man's true value. The highest value a man can receive in the sight of, of a humanist is but an animal. So we might as well live like him. And though we apostatize from God in the fall, though we've lived in rebellion against him and acknowledged him no longer, and though we were estranged by our sin, and though we delighted to serve sin and Satan, though we were utterly lost, God still highly values us as creatures made in his image. Like the lost coin, you may be corroded, you may be out of circulation, you may be caked with dust. But in the esteem of God, lost sinner, you are still precious to him. You still bear God's mint mark, distorted as sin as it might be. That's why he is seeking to reclaim you through the gospel of his son. And what is so marvelous is that God didn't wipe our apostate race from the face of the earth. Justice certainly would have permitted it. Ah, but mercy stepped in. The mercy of God. 
And he didn't destroy us. Even before God spoke his first creative syllable, he chose to restore a remnant of lost humanity in the image of his son. You see, as God's lost coin, he values you both for what you are as his creature and for what he will make you as a new creature in Jesus Christ. We are valuable to God as his creation and especially as his new creation. So God values lost sinners. Secondly, as we consider the message of this parable, God seeks lost sinners. We know that he values us because he seeks us. If he didn't regard us as valuable, he would have let us go. God seeks those whom he values. He seeks not fallen angels, but fallen sinners. Notice, Jesus searches. He seeks selectively. That is, he came from heaven to seek and to save not all men. He didn't come to seek the 99. He didn't come to seek those that weren't lost. But he came to seek a peculiar people. And we know this from the angel's announcement before Jesus' birth. Indeed, Jesus' name means Savior. Jehovah saves. He is a Savior of a special people. John read this in our hearing last Lord's Day. Matthew 1 and verse 21. And she, that is Mary, will bear a son, and Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For it is he who will save his people from their sins. He didn't come to save them from the Romans. He came to save them from their sin. So Jesus traveled to Jericho to save a tax gatherer named Zacchaeus. Luke 19, verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And Jesus said to him later, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. So Jesus traveled to a well in Samaria in search of one lost woman whom he met and then afterward her neighbors. So he sought out the man born blind and not only gave him sight but also eyes to see the kingdom of God. So the Lord visited a family in Bethany. So he gave healing and forgiveness to a woman with an issue of blood, sight, and salvation to blind Bartimaeus, cleansing to a Samarian leper, Samaritan leper, and on and on we could go. All these lost souls, you see, were precious to Jesus. He sought them out. Whatever their lot in life, however far they were from God, he went after them. And so Jesus found and he continues to find and gather together in one family his precious scattered children. John 11 verses 51 and 52. Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, not just for Israel, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad down to this day and beyond. 
to rescue people like you and me. So Jesus searches selectively, he searches continually. He will scour this dark world to save that which is lost. God promised the exiled remnant of Israel scattered throughout the world that he would find them and bring them back home to Israel. What is that a picture of? So Jesus, even now, by his spirit, seeks out the elect of God and claims them for himself. John 10 and verse 16. And I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Furthermore, Jesus searches successfully. Our Lord is assured that his search will prove fruitful. He not only seeks, you see, but he also saves those whom he seeks. He seeks and saves that which is lost. And of this he is assured by the electing grace of the Father, by his own atoning work and by the effectual grace of the Spirit. Jesus says in John 10 and verse 28, I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one shall snatch his people out of his hand. In this parable, our Lord paints a beautiful picture of God's free grace and salvation. Lost coins do not seek their owner any more than lost sheep seek their shepherd. This lost coin would never have been found if it had not been sought. God's will, not our will, is what causes us to be found. We're running and he stretches out his crook and he takes us away from our mad dash into Christless eternity. Spurgeon Apley says, commenting on this portion of scripture, the doctrine of free will has not a specimen to show to prove itself. There is not a sheep in the flock that came back to the shepherd unsought. There is not a single piece of money which leaped again into the woman's purse. She swept the house to find it. There is not even a single prodigal in the entire family who did ever say, I will arise and go unto my father till first the father's grace veiling itself in the afflicting providence of a mighty famine had taught the prodigal the miserable results of his sin. Notice thirdly, as we look at the message expounded, God rejoices over his reclamation of lost sinners. Last time we noted that the joy of the shepherd and his friends over the reclaimed lost sheep is a faint picture of the joy of heaven over each repenting sinner. And so here with the woman and her friends over the locating the lost coin. We read that joy erupts in the presence of the angels of God. Now, brethren, there is deep mystery here. We know that elect angels shouted with joy at the first creation. We also have a keen, they also have a keen interest in and play an important supporting role in the work of redemption. 
Jubilant angels announced our Savior's birth as good news of a great joy. The writer of Hebrews informs us that angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. According to Peter, God's saving plan is a wonder into which angels long to look. Angels ever praise God over a repenting sinner, each one that repents. There's joy erupting in heaven. We noted others present with the angels in heaven. The spirits of just men made perfect, they are there. The church triumphant dwells in heaven. Saints in heaven must rejoice when they learn of others down here on earth who have tasted the saving grace of God, who have entered through the narrow gate which leads to life. That there are others now pilgrims that were before running from God and now they're looking to God and following after God. Again, there is in heaven a rejoicer, infinitely more significant and glorious than the saints and angels. Again, I ask you, who is the central figure in all this holy rejoicing? In whose presence does this rejoicing take place? It is he who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but yet calls them to repentance. The living God is the great rejoicer over repentant sinners. How God's rejoicing, I don't know what form it takes and how it's understood, but I believe that the, the angels and the saints understand something of the joy of our God. It's his joy that we experience, is it not? He's not up there, oh, another one's repented. That's blasphemy, brethren. How can he not rejoice over a sinner saved by the blood of his son? How God's rejoicing must heighten the ecstasy of praising saints and angels. Dear ones, if, if we are thinking rightly and we are carried away with joy here on earth over the news of a sinner saved, how great heaven's rejoicing must continually be. So let's apply the meaning of this parable. We've seen its imagery and its message. Now let's look at its meaning applied. Four points and we'll be done. First of all, let us never despair of any sinner's salvation. That's that little Pharisee in us again. Oh, that guy's too far gone. She'll never come to Christ. Too far down the road for them. You know, some people might have said that about some of us, but here we are. These parables teach that we should never think any sinner too far gone to be saved. Let us not be guilty of Pharisaic thinking. The first century church may have thought Saul of Tarsus to be hopelessly lost. 
He's an enemy of the church. He'll never become a member of the church. He's God's enemy. He'll never become his friend. Ah, but God thinks differently than we do. God granted Saul of Tarsus repentance and he gives his testimony in several places. Here he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, you'll find this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't go into this with my eyes wide open. I hadn't committed the unpardonable sin. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. God's grace is greater than all of our sin. As long as God's grace is greater than our sin, there is hope for the hardest and the foulest of sinners. Do not think that the letters LGBTQ necessarily spell reprobate. Or that Somalians cannot become saints. Or that abortionists and mothers who kill their children are beyond saving. Christ seeks and saves all manner of sinners. He saves abortionists. He saves homosexuals and fornicators and adulterers, liars, thieves, drunks, covetous, the whole range of sins. He saves those characterized by such vices, and he makes them virtuous saints by the grace of God. Remember yourself. He saves devotees to false religion and those who proudly own no religion. Remember, Christian brother or sister, Christ saved you. What is Paul saying? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. After giving that litany of, of carnality characterizing the Corinthians before they were saved. He says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. As long as God's grace is greater than all of our sin, there is hope for those we might deem hopeless. As long as Jesus is seeking, no sinner is beyond saving. No matter how much dirt covers him, however long he is lost and seems without hope, God can locate him and save him. It used to be said of Canadian Mounties that they always get their man. What may or may not be true of the Mounties is certainly true of God. Christ came to rescue a world of lost sinners and he will keep seeking and keep saving until that work given him by the Father is finished. He sought out and saved sinful men and women thought beyond the reach of the, and the care of God. Jesus saves crusty sinners like the Philippian jailer and nice sinners like Lydia and everyone in between. Let no one in this room think that you are either too nice or too nasty to be saved. God calls those 
who deem themselves too bad or think that they are too good, he calls them to salvation. In fact, he opened up the eyes of some of these Pharisees and scribes to see that they were nothing but whitewashed sepulchers and granted them faith in Jesus. And the lowest ranks of society, he brought them into the kingdom of God. Second word of application is let us seek lost sinners. You say, that's God's job. Well, he must save. But what does he call, what's the name for Christians? We are witnesses. What is a witness? Someone who testifies to what he knows is true. If you've been saved by Jesus Christ, you're a witness. You're to testify what God has done in your life to speak of the reason for the hope that's within you. That's what we're called to do. He came to seek and save lost sinners. And the Bible, in fact, teaches that he who wins, who he was wise, wins souls. And though our holy Lord was separate from sinners, he never separated himself from sinners. His gentleness and love made him attractive and magnetically approachable. We have to ask ourselves, do we have that same kind of magnetism, however weak, that Jesus had in all its strength? Oh, that we may imitate our seeking Lord. May we too in his name seek to save the lost. Brethren, these are evil days. Let us buy up each opportunity that the Lord gives us to share the good news of a great joy that Christ came into the world to save sinners. May God bless our seeking efforts that we might know something of that joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. May we be numbered among those who lead the many to righteousness that will shine like the stars forever and ever, as Daniel says. We who have received, let us give. Second, or thirdly, let us rejoice at the news of sinners being saved. You know, we can be old stick in the muds. You say, ah, I don't think so. Well, time will tell. It, it does. But sometimes we don't even give it a chance. That person, he's just faking it or he doesn't know what he believes. Brethren, if those in heaven rejoice at the news of lost sinners being reclaimed, should we not rejoice too in hope? Do we not want to increase the happiness of others and, our, and ourselves? Let us pray for them and witness to them. And when we hear any indication that God may have done work of grace in their hearts, let's pray, even so, Lord, make it to be so. Let us pray for them. Speak to them of Christ. Let us rejoice when we hear of them coming to the Lord. Finally, dear non-Christian, do not despair of salvation when he saves any kind and every kind of sinner. But come to Jesus. Come to him. All who are weary and heavy laden, come to Christ. You go to him and he will in 
No circumstance, for no reason. He, he will not cast you out. He will receive you to himself. Jesus stiff-armed no sinner, but he received everyone that came to him. No matter how great your sin is, there is mercy waiting at the cross for you. There you may be washed whiter than snow in the blood of Christ. There you have this promise. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He has more pardon than what you need. Don't think I'm too far gone to be saved. Know that Jesus, our great Savior, saves great sinners. You may have fallen into an abyss of sin. You may have followed a wicked path all of your life. Never conclude that you're beyond the reach of Christ's mercy. The blood of Christ cleanses even the vilest sinners, and it can cleanse you too. No one is beyond hope of recovery, not even you. Hear Paul's testimony. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Take this to the bank. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. I'm the chief of sinners, Paul says. And listen to his counsel. Do not despair he says, and yet for this reason, I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see, I'm a living testimony, Paul says, to the power of saving grace that he saves the foremost of sinners. He saved me. You come to Christ and he'll save you. Your situation is not hopeless. If you think so, you're wrong. The glory of the gospel is that our great Savior saves great sinners. Come to him now. Let's pray. Poor Father, what a wonderful story this is because it's true in our experience that you seek and you save and you will do so continually. You'll spare no effort and energy. You'll track us down. You'll open our eyes to see the kingdom of God. You will grant us faith and repentance and we who are running from you, you are faster and fleeter of foot and you will catch us and you will rescue us and you'll place our feet upon the narrow road that leads to life, and you'll point us to heaven, and you that began that good work will finish it. So Lord, we pray that if there's any here this morning that have any doubt whether they are saved or know that they're not, know that there's greater mercy in Christ than all of their sin. And we pray that you would give them the feet of faith and repentance to run to Jesus and taste and see that God is good through what you have done in him. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.